This is Romans chapter 8. There we go. Hi, everyone. This is Romans 8, 18 to 30. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. If anybody needs an extra guitar stand, we have them right there. So feel free to take it if you need to. So not that long ago, uh, Laura and I had some friends over. And they came over, and it was uh, one of those really bizarre moments uh, in the life of a family, in the life of a family with small children, where we actually had a chance to talk. It was really bizarre. Like, the, the kids were were occupied with one another. They were playing with one another. Uh, Nobody had gotten punched in the face. Um, Nobody was clamoring for a cheese stick. We actually had an opportunity to talk, which was really, really refreshing, um, actually. And so we started to catch up with these these friends of ours. And this, uh, the, the husband began to talk about these friends of theirs and how they had tried to get in contact with these friends of theirs, they had called, they had texted, and they had not heard anything back for several months. And then finally, finally, they got a call. Uh, the husband called my friend, and he said, I'm really sorry, we, we've, we've just been totally slammed. He said, I found out that I have a tumor in my brain. I have a brain tumor. And we had to aggressively go to, uh, I think, I don't know if surgery was involved, but, but all kinds of treatment was involved, and they really didn't know where this was going to go. 
This is a man in his 40s, a man with small children, a man who was healthy, and then all of a sudden he is diagnosed with this brain tumor. And so my friend is telling me about this. He's telling me about this friend of his who has this. And then my friend turns to me and he says, he says, Kevin, that's why I don't believe in what you believe in. Today we are continuing in our series on the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is a letter that was written about 20, 25 years after the life and ministry of Jesus. It's written by a man named Paul, and he's writing to the early Christian communities in the city of Rome. And what we've seen as we have been unpacking this, this incredibly dense letter, we've been unpacking it for months now, we've seen the main theme, the theme that he wants to drive home to these early Christian communities in Rome is that there is good news, right? That's what gospel means. It means good news, and he wants them to know that there is, there is good news, that the news of what God has done in and through the person of Jesus is good news. In fact, it is the best news possible. It is, the, it is the good news to end all good news. It is, it is, the, it is the, in fact, he, I think what Paul wants us to see throughout this letter is that, in fact, the gospel is the only good news that you ultimately need to hear. It's ultimately the only good news you really need to hear, that if from this day forward all that you receive is bad news. Maybe you walk into work tomorrow, you go in there, and they tell you you're fired. And so you pack up your, your belongings, you pack up whatever you have. You, they, they've provided a cardboard box for you. Wasn't that kind? And, and you put all of your belongings in that box, and you, you leave, and you get in your car, and on your way home, you get in a car accident. And you're injured, and then several weeks later, you get out of the hospital, and you go home, and you discover that your house has burned down to the ground. I mean, if you from this day forward discover that all you receive is bad news, what Paul wants you to know is that if you know the gospel, that's the only good news you'll need to know. Ultimately, that's, that's all that you need. And, and if this is true, you see, if this is true that the gospel is this good news, this good news to end all good news, this good news that in the end is all that you really need, it must be able to deal with the issue of suffering. If it's that good, it must somehow be able to deal with suffering because this, this question of Why is there suffering? Why is there suffering in my life? Why is there suffering in your life? Why is there suffering in other people's life? I I believe this is one of the biggest questions, one of the biggest obstacles that often hinders people from fully embracing the faith. I think about my own father, who for many years was not a, a believer, and I know that for him one of the biggest obstacles, ironically in light of the story that my friend told me, is that my father's mother died of a brain tumor when he was young. And I remember us talking, and you know, this 40, 50 years after this had taken place, talking about God, and, and he would ask, why? Why did that happen? So I know that for him, and I know that for many, this question, why is there suffering, becomes a huge question and a big obstacle to people being able to 
embrace the faith. And I think as we come to this passage, see, Paul understands this. He understands the reality of suffering and understands that it's something that has to be addressed. And I think we find in this passage three answers to this question of suffering. Three answers that the, the Bible provides, or to which the gospel points to, three answers that the Bible provides with regards to this this question of of suffering. Now, the first one is the most important. I think it's the most important, at least existentially, experientially, I would say this is the most important one is the first one because, because actually the first one, the first answer isn't really an answer at all. The first one isn't really an answer as much as it is a unique source of comfort in the midst of suffering. And, and here's what it is. God doesn't necessarily answer why you're suffering or I'm suffering or there's suffering in this world. He doesn't necessarily answer why, but here's what. He doesn't necessarily answer it, but he enters into it. God doesn't necessarily answer it, but he enters into it. This is the uniqueness of the Christian faith that, that you see in light of what took place in the person of Jesus, we might still understandably, in the face of suffering, shake our fist at God and say, why God, why? But what we can never say is, God, you don't understand. We can say, why God, why? That's understandable. But what we can never say in light of the gospel is, God, you don't understand, because the very heart of the gospel is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself came into our world, became a human being, put on flesh, became one of us. And he is a God who entered entered into our world and he experienced all the fullness of pain and suffering. He experienced betrayal. He experienced rejection. Uh, He experienced abandonment. He experienced suffering. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was mocked. He was all of these things. And then ultimately, he was killed. The heart of that, what that reveals to us, is that we have a God who has entered into our suffering, entered into the darkness of our world. And you will not find that in any other religion, any other worldview. This is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. It's not so much an answer to why there's suffering as much as it is this unique source of comfort that while we may not have an answer, God may not answer it, he has entered into it. And what we discover actually in this passage, in verse, uh, we'll see this in verse 26, is that not only has God entered into the suffering of the world in general in the person of Jesus, but he has through the Spirit entered into your specific suffering. And your specific suffering, through the Spirit, he has entered into your specific situation such that he is with you in the midst of it. This is what emerges, amongst other things, in verse verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Last week, we talked about at the heart of the gospel is not simply 
that God forgives us, as central as that is. God forgives us, but he didn't just come to forgive us. He came to put his spirit in us. God doesn't just forgive us. He came to put his spirit, his spirit in us, that when we profess faith in him, his spirit comes in us. And so now we're seeing what that means and the implications of what that is when God puts his spirit in us. And what we see is that, is that God enters into our world, enters into our suffering. Now, just as a sort of a side note here in verse 26, uh, some people have said that in verse 26, this is referring to speaking in tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues. Um, and that's certainly a possibility, though I think it probably isn't for a couple of reasons. One is that in this passage, Paul seems to assume that this experience of the Spirit groaning inside us is for all Christians. He doesn't seem to suggest that this is only for some. Uh, Whereas when we talk about the gift of speaking in tongues, Paul suggests that that's something that is only for some. Not everybody has that. So whatever this Spirit groaning thing is, it seems like it applies to all, and so it must be something different. And secondly, I think it's also quite likely when it talks about the Spirit groaning, it may not even refer to anything audible. In fact, it, it may, in fact, be, in, in some respects, more metaphorical. The reason why that is probably the case is because in the passage that immediately precedes this, uh, I believe in verse, yeah, verse 22, we see that he uses the same language when talking about the creation groaning. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth. Here it's personification, it's personifying this idea that creation is groaning, not suggesting that that if you walk outside today, you're actually going to hear the tree say something, right? And so in a similar sense, it seems that he's, he's using sort of this metaphorical language of talking about the spirit groaning inside, right? Groaning inside of us because the spirit understands what's going on. The spirit knows what we're going through, even understands it better than we do. The point for our purposes with regards to that is simply this, that The spirit inside of us is God walking through life with you. And so, not only did God come in the person of Jesus to enter into the suffering of the world in general, but in the spirit, through the spirit, the spirit walks through the suffering that you're in with you. If you're here today, maybe you have gone through a divorce or are going through a divorce and you're experiencing that pain, when you put your faith in Jesus, you can know that the Spirit is walking through that pain with you, has entered into that with you. Maybe you're here today, you've been the victim of injustice in, in some regard in your life, in your past, perhaps now, and you feel that pain, you're like, God, why is this happening to me? And I don't know that I have an answer for you, but what I can tell you is that through faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God is with you. And he is groaning because he feels your pain with you. If you're here today and you just were diagnosed with some sort of illness, a terminal illness or something that will potentially seriously alter your quality of life and you're wrestling with this, why is this happening? I don't know that I have an answer for you, but what I can tell you is that the Spirit, when we put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God is with you and he understands and he's groaning as you are groaning at a depth that you don't even understand. 
You see, this is the wisdom of the Bible, I think, is that there's so much wisdom in this that, that when it comes to this issue of, of, of suffering, the first thing that we see is not an answer. When we look at the face of Jesus, we look at the gospel, the first thing that we find is not an, an answer, but this unique source of comfort, right? Because, I, and I think that that actually does justice to the issue of suffering, that, that if I were to get up here and try to like solve it for you, and get up here and pretend that the issue of suffering is like a Rubik's Cube, that if we just, if we just turn it right the right direction and get the blue here and the red here, then, then you can figure it out. Oh, I get it. Now I understand why they're suffering. And there's something about that way of thinking, right? This sort of idea that if I can just get my logical ducks in a row, then I can understand, you know, why there is suffering. And I think the Bible very wisely understands it's just so much bigger than that. It's beyond our comprehension that to try to do that, I think, minimizes the suffering that so many of us experience, so the wisdom of the Bible is look at, you know, first and foremost, because I'm going to give you some reasons here in a minute, but most importantly, what I want us to understand here is that whether we understand or not, God enters into it with us. And I think that's important. It's sort of a side application of that, that as God has done for us, so we do for others. If you find yourself talking with somebody, meeting with somebody, and they're sharing their suffering with you. I think sometimes as Christians, we feel this burden. Well, I've got to have an answer. I've got to have an answer for why this is happening. And I would encourage you, don't give an answer. You don't know. Don't, don't give an answer, but, but enter into it with them. Say, look, I, I don't know why this is happening, but I'm here for you, and I feel your pain. I love you. I think that, that goes so much farther even in our ability to engage and witness with those who are struggling than trying to give them an answer. Enter into it as God has, has entered into ours. So in the face of suffering, what does the gospel have? What are the resources that the gospel offers us in the face of suffering? And the first answer, I suppose, which really isn't an answer, is that God enters into it with us. But secondly, what we need to see is that in the face of suffering, what we need to understand is that when you suffer, when we suffer, it was never God's original intention for that to happen. God never, God never wanted that. It's never what God wants. God doesn't want that. God never intended for this to happen. What we need to understand is that human suffering is ultimately the result of our own rebellion, of humanity's rebellion against God. That's ultimately why. And, and this emerges, where am I getting this from? Well, this emerges here, uh, this emerges in, well, it emerges in verse 20. Verse 20, it says, For the creation, so all of creation, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Okay, what is Paul talking about here? What Paul is alluding to in this passage is he's alluding back, as he always does, we've seen this throughout the book of Romans, he is constantly alluding to the Old Testament. He's constantly alluding to the story of the people of Israel. He is constantly alluding to the story of humanity 
as it unfolds in the Bible. And in this passage, when he talks about how creation was subjected to futility, this is, this is language in which he is referring back to the fall. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what we discover in Genesis 1 and 2, actually, is God taking disorder and bringing order out of disorder. So it says in the beginning of Genesis, it says the spirit was hovering over the waters, and it says the earth was formless and empty. Formless and empty. And this is language for just sort of disorder and chaos. And it's this idea that in creation, God comes and he takes disorder, he takes chaos, and he brings beauty and order to all of creation. And that's what we find in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, with, with all of this poetical language about God creating and in that creation taking order and disorder and bringing order and beauty. And, and that's what we find in Genesis 1 and 2. And it comes to its pinnacle, right? The pinnacle of this, of this bringing order to disorder is found in the story of the Garden of Eden. That God has brought order and beauty to creation, and his intention is that now humanity, right, those made in his, his, his image, these, that his people can live in a world where there isn't suffering, where there isn't pain, where there isn't disorder. He's gotten rid of that in creation, and so, so now humanity can live in this world where there isn't suffering, and there isn't pain, and there isn't disorder. But at the very moment... The very moment when God presents this possibility to humanity is precisely, as we read in Genesis 3, when we turn away from God. Adam rebels against God. Adam doubts God. Adam turns away from God. He turns away from the very one who sustains the beauty and the order of creation. And so then in Genesis 3, it talks about how God curses the ground and what's going on there. It's another way of saying, look, if you don't want me to be a part of this, this is what happens. If you don't want me to be a part of this, this is what happens. I remove my presence, which is me cursing the ground. And so he's then saying, now God, who had brought order and creation to that which was in disorder, he's saying, now, okay, you don't want me? I'm going to let it go back in that direction. So all of creation then, all of creation then is affected by this. And so, you see, God never wanted that. God never intended for that to take place. Whatever you're facing, I don't know what you're going through right now. Again, maybe it's a relationship struggle. Maybe there's tension in your marriage. Maybe there's a health problem in your family. I want you to know God weeps for you. God does not want that to happen to you. That was never God's intention. So the first answer to this issue of suffering, and most importantly, is that God enters into it, whether we understand it or not. Secondly, God never intended for this to happen. It's a result of human rebellion against God. And thirdly, and finally, God will make things right. The heart of the Christian faith, the heart of the gospel, is that ultimately, God 
will make things right. When we put our hope, when we put our faith, when we put our trust in God, we can know, we can hope, we can know that God will make things right. Whatever it is that you're facing, there's a certainty to this. And, and Paul, the way Paul drives home this certainty, he drives it home in a number, a number of different ways, but it comes through here in verses 28 through 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, when we look at a passage like that, I know that for many people in our culture, they see the word predestination and they freak out, right? You see the word predestination and you, you freak out. And, and here's, here's what I, I want to do with that word. I want to help you just don't freak out about this. Uh, when, when God talks about, pre, when the Bible talks about predestination, what we need to understand is that this is a mystery to stand in awe of, not to solve. It is a mystery to stand in awe of how the relationship of God's sovereignty and our own human responsibility, how those work together is a mystery to stand in awe of, not to solve. Trust me, I know I tried to solve it. I spent about five to 10 years of my life trying to figure it out. And the maturity came not with an answer, but realizing this is something that I couldn't possibly understand. How could my finite mind ever understand this? So what I encourage you is to realize this issue of predestination is a mystery to stand in awe of, not to try to solve. And, and Paul's point here, I mean, when, he's, when he says this, Really, it's really just simply meant to be of encouragement. The doctrine of predestination is meant to be a doctrine of encouragement. It's simply, what he's just simply trying to say here is, look, your deliverance is sure. Your deliverance is certain. That's why he uses all these, you know, all these, all these words, which, you know, are, there's so much depth you could go into here. But really, he's just saying it's secure. God, those whom he foreknew, uh, those whom he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. And what's so, what's so great about this is, is how Paul uses the past tense even for things that are in the future. When he talks about being glorified, or he ends it with glorified, it's like he's, he's talked about being predestined, that's in the past, called in the past, justified in the past, and, and then he's like, and glorified, and he just says it as if it's already happened, which we know it's not something that's already happened. You know, either Paul's kind of has, you know, Alzheimer's or something and forgot what he said earlier. In verse 18, he says, I can consider that our present sufferings are not worth compa- comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So, I mean, just a few sentences before, he understood that this idea of us being glorified is something that will happen, but in this passage, he talks about it as if it's already happened. It's, a, it's what's known as this prophetic certainty. He just wants you to, to just be, to rest in this reality that God is going to make things right. And that is grounded, of course, in the heart of the gospel that Jesus died and he rose from the grave as the firstborn amongst the brothers and sisters. He is the first to rise from the dead. He is that signpost that points to the reality that God has ultimately defeated pain and sickness and death and those who put their faith in him 
can rest in the truth that one day that will happen for them as well. In fact, not only will he make things right, but he will use all the things that went wrong and he will take them and he will make them right. He will use the things that have gone wrong for his purposes. Of course, that's what emerges here in verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He's saying all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, all things, all the things that are going on in your life, the bad things, and no doubt that's what he has in mind when he says that, the bad things, he will use the bad things to bring good. And of course, we know that this is true, right? Because again, this is precisely what happened to Jesus. Right? We, we, we shouldn't be surprised Right Elsewhere, Paul says, don't be surprised at the painful trials you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. He says that elsewhere. Don't be surprised by that. And ultimately, he realizes we shouldn't be surprised because this is exactly what happened to Jesus. Right? When we think about Jesus, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus conquered pain and suffering and death. But we, we've got to think about the course of his life. What was the course that, it, that his life took? It's not like, you know, Jesus came to earth and... Um, you know, graduated from high school, went to college, married his high school sweetheart. Uh, you know, they, they had a few kids, got a nice house in Rivervale. Uh, you know, they, uh, they get to go uh, down to LBI. They got a, a beach house down at LBI, which they go down to, you know, on, on the weekends, right? And he, you know, flips uh, burgers at, at Labor Day and all of this. And, and then he retires, right, settles into retirement, and then after he retired, then God came and took him and he ascended into heaven. No. That's, that's not the course that it took. Jesus came. He, he came into this world. He came into this world and he suffered. And he died. He was beaten. He was rejected. His, his life went really pretty much the opposite way than we would want or hope or expect. That's the course that it took, but it was through that that God brought redemption to all of creation. It was through his pain, through his suffering, God took that and he worked it for good. And what Paul is saying, the same thing's true for those who put their faith in him. We put our faith, we put our hope in Christ. We know that just as everything that he went through was ultimately used for good, you can know that the things that you're going through God will use them for good. The cancer that you're dealing with, the relationship breakup that you're, you're dealing with, the challenges that you're dealing with at work, in the mystery of God's providence, when we put our faith in him, we can trust that God will use that for his good. In the face of suffering, we can know that we have a God who has entered into it, we have a God who never intended for it to happen in the first place. And ultimately, we have a God who will make it right. And what's important about that is that when we understand that God will make it right, it changes the question with regards to suffering. You see, for a Christian, the question with regards to suffering 
changes from why is this happening to how long until it's not. It's no longer why is this happening to me, but when will it be over? It's no longer why, it's no longer, ready, here we go, I say, you've heard me say this before, it becomes no longer a philosophical question, but an eschatological question. Christians, we are to think eschatologically, not philosophically. Why is this happening to me? That's a philosophical question. When will it end? That is an eschatological question, and we are to train ourselves to think eschatologically, not philosophically. In fact, that's the purpose of Advent. In a few months, we're going to come to the season of Advent, and the season of Advent is a season which is designed to train us to think eschatologically, not philosophically, that we go, and and, and the season of Advent is a time in which we relive the experience of the people of Israel in the centuries coming up to Christ's coming, to the coming of the Messiah, and we, we anticipate with them that sense of how long, how long, when will you come? And in doing that, it, it points to Christ's second coming. Advent is a time in which we look and we wait patiently for, for, for Christ to return, and we train ourselves to think that way. Another way of saying that is that Advent is a time, again, in which we train ourselves to wait patiently. And that's what we see here. See, Paul has this sort of eschatological way of thinking throughout all of his writing. We see this here in verse 24 and 25. For in this we hope, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who has, who hopes for what he already has? You see, he's saying, you're thinking philosophically, what is right in front of me? What is right there? He's saying, that's not how we think. That's not what hope is, right? Hope does not look to what we see now. No, who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. As we understand the gospel, we understand that God will make things right, I pray that the Spirit would train us to wait patiently. Not why, God, not why, but how long? And to cry out with that. That's what I love about the Psalms. The Psalms have all of these Psalms where like, how long, God? How long, God? Like this kind of this anger. How long? How long? It's a wonderful question because it's, it's a question that is grounded in hope and in trust that God one day will make it right. So in conclusion, when we find ourselves in the face of suffering, what I would want to suggest to you is that suffering is not a reason to turn away from God. Suffering is a reason to turn to God. We have that choice. In the midst of suffering, we can either turn away from God or we can turn to him. And I think when we really get the gospel, we realize that suffering is a time and an opportunity to turn to God. In fact, what I would say then, now, to, to summarize this, the gospel, okay, the gospel, the good news is not just news that happens to have answers that might help you in your suffering. The gospel is the answer to suffering. 
That's what it is. It is the good news that God has come. Let me just read to you. I remember I I marked this in the Bible I was going to use preaching this morning, and then I left it at home. So now on the spot, you're going to see if I can find it. This is in Luke at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? According to the gospel of Luke, when he begins his ministry, this is the first thing that he says in his public ministry. Listen to what he says. And he, he takes uh, the scroll. He's, he's, uh, um, he's, he's in the synagogue, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah, and this is what he reads. He says, and he says, this applies to him. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What he's saying at the, at the initiation of his entire ministry is, I have come here to deal with suffering. That's not a part of what I am. Like That, that happens to be some nice resources for you. That's why I came. Friends, in the face of suffering, we can remember these three things. First of all, and most importantly, God has entered into it with you in the face of your suffering. Secondly, God never intended for it to happen. And third, God will make things right. Whatever you're going through, maybe right now your challenge is in in the workplace. You're in a toxic work environment. You have to sit in meetings or talk to colleagues who are disrespectful to you, who belittle you, who minimize you in front of other people. You have to endure that. Listen to me. The Spirit of God is enduring that with you. He never intended for that to happen, and one day he will make it right. Like this, another whole sermon. We read in the book of Revelation, we get this incredible picture of this idea that in eternity, we will work, but we will work and we will not be frustrated by all the stuff that hinders us from being able to do what we were created to do. As I will often say, heaven, eternity is not so much your dream vacation as it is your dream job. God will enable you to to flourish and to do what you were created to. To do So God's with you in the midst of that suffering. God, God never intended for that to happen, and ultimately, God will make it right. Maybe you are here today, and you are struggling physically. Maybe you've been diagnosed with some sort of a condition that is, has significantly altered your quality of life. You don't know where it's going to go. Listen, I... I don't want to pretend to understand. But I do know that God understands. He is in it with you. He never wanted that in the first place. And ultimately, either now or in eternity, God will make things right. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we praise you for the hope of the gospel. We praise you that it is the good news that ends all good news, that it is all that we need. God, I pray that we would cling to that. You are everything that we need. 
God, may we rest assured that you are with us in whatever we deal with. God, you are there. God, you suffer with us. You empathize with us as you, you didn't want us there dealing with that. And God, ultimately, may we put our hope in the truth that you will make things right. There will come a day when you will put an end to all pain and suffering. You will renew all of creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now come to our time of response. There are a number of ways in which you can respond. You can respond.